Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. We're knee-deep in the G section of the library software set in Slackware. The next one up is Gobject, G-Object, Introspection. This is a library that helps other, other languages, other programming languages, recognize data about virtual objects, as it were, in C code. So G-Object is the, is the little system that, that GNOME, the GNOME project provides for use with GTK, Pango, and things like that, uh, d to, to make your C code sort of have an awareness, as it were, of, of the idea of an object. And in code, when we talk about an object, we're really just talking, and I mean, arguably in the physical world, I guess, although there's a, certainly a, a physical component to that, obviously, like physics component. But in, even in the real world, when you think of an object, you think of a list of attributes, a list of things about that object. And when you go about classifying objects in a very abstract way, then those objects are defined by their attributes. And in code, a lot of times there's a there's a reason that you might want to refer to a, a bundle of code, a group of of common or, or related rather related attributes, and you, you so you you call that an object. And C natively doesn't have really a way to do that. I mean, you can mimic it, or you could use G object. I, I can think of a couple of ways uh, to mimic it in C, but I don't write C often enough to really uh, speak confidently about a, a good way to mimic it. So I'll, I'll defer to something that I that I do use a lot, which is Lua. And in Lua, you you don't have objects. Lua is just basically a, a really nice front end to C after a fashion. And so you don't have objects in Lua, but some people came up with a clever way of mimicking an object, and that is to create essentially an array or a, a table is what they call it in Lua, like a like a table, like a chart, you know, a table. Um, so you, you, you create a table, you, you give the table, really it's a meta table, but it's that you give this structure a, a name, you say, okay, this is my, this is the, the class by which I will, or the, this is the table, a template I will use to create the player icon in my little video game. Well, what does your player icon have? Well, they probably have health points. They probably have health points or hit points, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they probably have a weapon that's armed right now. Maybe they have a level of intelligence or not. I mean, not real intelligence, but a score representing how smart they are or something like that. And so all of these attributes get stored in a table in Lua, and we call it an object. Because whenever we want to create a player, we can use that object as a template and say, okay, well, while creating this player, we need to fill out these values. And also, if we know that a player exists, we know that we can query for 
the values of these specific attributes, because we'll always know that a player consists of HP, weapon, and int. You'll never see a player without those values. So, in G-Object introspection, a method is provided to look at an object and define those attributes. So it, you, can, you can define what an object consists of, what attributes it, it's going to contain, what, what data types, what, what kind of uh, metadata there is around that object, what, what values you could query for, and so on. This is useful because with G-Object Introspect, you can build your, 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 your library and then have sort of external awareness of what an object contains. Because normally, if you're writing, like, I don't know, Python, and you want to interact with uh, some C libraries, first of all, you'll, you'll need an API. You'll need something that Python can just confidently know, or you, writing Python, can confidently know will exist within this programming environment. There's really no way to know what's in a, a player object if it's written in C code, and you're writing in Python, like, what's a player object? You don't have that library in your environment right now. It's not a Python object. It's like a C object being generated by a C library somewhere. What is a player? Well, with G-Object Introspect, you'll know what a player is. You, you, can, you can learn, you can discover that a player is this, this, and this. So HP, for instance, weapon and intelligence, which is the example I was using. So you'll know that your C object, when a player gets created with a C library, it produces values for those three things. And so in your Python, you, you can't maybe, you can't create that player, but if a player exists, then you could query it. So you're not using like widgets or objects from from C native libraries in a different programming language just automatically. That is possible, you can make that happen, but not that's not what G-Object Introspect is for. G-Object Introspect is simply a, a way, and, and it's, it's defined in XML, and then it's and that XML is parsed during compile time by G-Object Introspect. You're gaining an awareness of the constructs created within a C code set so that you can access it potentially from somewhere else. There's a pretty good tutorial on, or I shouldn't say a good tutorial, there's an, a, a tutorial on G-Object on the GNOME developer site, well, developer-old.gnome.org slash G-Object. There is a tutorial there that demonstrates how to interact or how to create, really, a G-Object. And that's kind of interesting because you get to see the, the different components of, of a G-Object that you're creating. And you can imagine, you know, creating this G-Object with, like, a zoom level property. Well, what happens to that zoom level? It, it stays in your C code unless you have G-Object introspection, in which case now something else knows that there is a zoom level, and maybe you could tap into that one way or another. Next up is Grant Lee. G-R-A-N-T-L-E-E. -E. I don't know if that's somebody's name, or if it's a play on an adverb. I'm not sure. What I am sure is that it's a templating library, Grant Lee is. It's, it's really, really similar to Jinja, what is it, Jinja 2 officially, I think, although I think they're on version 3.0 now, so I don't know, maybe we're just calling it Jinja, not sure. J-I-N-J-A, Jinja. Kind of like Ninja, except with a J instead of an N. 
at the beginning, which I only bring up because the icon of the project is sort of a Japanese-looking uh, structure, so I don't know if that's some kind of reference to a reference. I'm not sure. So, lots of name confusion here, but it doesn't matter. Grant Lee is the cute um, library that brings essentially Jinja templating, or Jinja-style templating, to a cute application. So even though this starts with a G, it's not a GNOME library. It's actually for the cute project, which is commonly used, for instance, in KDE. Well, it is it is the basis for KDE. It's the, the underlying libraries for, for the KDE framework. So Jinja, if you've never used it, is, uh, is distinctive, which is a great thing. And um, it's not bad, which is also a good thing. And I, I just say that because, I don't know, um, learning a new syntax is all, all is, is usually a little bit scary, and sometimes you just think, well, why am I learning this new syntax when I can just do it the hard way with what I already know? And there's an argument for that, because then you're just using the thing that you know, you're not importing a new library, and so on. But Jinja templating and, and Grantly templating really is worth an extra include in whatever project you're you're doing. Or at least that's been my experience. So uh, this this templating style, like Jinja style templating, for instance, is let's say let's say you've got a a variable. It's called foo, and it contains I don't know the name of the user. They've entered their username, whatever they want to be called, and you want to send them a personalized message in your message. You know, in the application, you want to you want to be able to address your user by their name. Now, traditionally, the kind of thing that you would probably do is sort of like do some kind of print f statement where you address the user but in the text of your little message rather than using uh, the the username you use some kind of shorthand like percent s for a string and then after after the the printf message you've just created in your code you tell printf what percent s stands for or should be replaced with and that is in this case foo that's the username which by the way why would we call our variable foo if it's just the username we should just call it my username or, or username something like that anyway the the thing that you know how to do you'd probably just do it with printf the potential problem there, or the inconvenience there, is that you then have to integrate printf with whatever other system you're using to, for instance, generate that text. So printf is really handy for just logging or uh, printing things to uh, the terminal output of of a of a program that runs in a terminal. But once you introduce GUI frameworks and stuff, you're no longer just printfing to the K dialog box or whatever it's called, Q, Q dialog, I guess, is probably the class. Um, so you're, you know, you're, you're using this other, this framework that does another thing. So you need libraries that interact with that framework, not that just dump text into a terminal. Now, yes, you could, you could do a printf and then use, I guess, the output of the printf. This would be weird. Yeah, no, you wouldn't do that. So, so I mean, you could do string functions and, like, concatenate things together and then put that, the, the result of the concatenation of that string function into your, your dialog box. But, but all of that stuff, and you're no longer doing what you know, first of all. And then second of all, you're, it's, you're, 
you're making it more complex than it needs to be. What you could do instead is use Grant Lee, which talks to the GUI, so you can use conventions within within your, your GUI programming, such as like templating, uh, which I keep talking about but never give an example of. So let's say that you want to send the message in a K dialog box, or Q dialog, whatever, and, and you want it to say, um, Hello, username. Thank you for logging in. That's what you want the thing to say. So rather than concatenating the word hello with your variable username and then the other the other string, thank you for logging in, concatenating that into a variable and then putting into your queue dialog box the results of that variable, the, the results of that concatenation as that variable. You could just say, in my queue dialog box, I want to put the string, hello, curly brace, curly brace, username, curly brace, curly brace, thank you for logging in. And Grant Lee takes, place, uh, t takes care of translating that full string into what you really mean for it to say, which is hello, Clatu, thank you for logging in. So it's it's just it's a difference of, like I say, using a bunch of string functions and concatenating things together and making a new variable and putting the variable into a different thing. It, it's doable. It's totally doable. That's that would be fine. That would work. But Grant Lee does that all for you, and all you have to do is use special notation, curly braces and percent signs, to substitute things into what you want your GUI dialog box or, or your GUI uh, uh, interface to say. So you really, really useful. And it's, um, you know, once you figure out how to import the library and what classes are available and what functions are available, once you, once you know the language of Grant Lee, it's really, really easy to use. It's just a subliminal thing. It's just, you're just writing text and you know that there are certain things that you can substitute out because you created those certain things. You know the syntax. It It's a really low learning curve, I think, uh, in terms of like the template itself. Uh, Jinja 2 or Jinja, whatever it is called, I was um, initially a little bit nervous about having to learn it. And, and it takes you like less than an afternoon. I mean, it is so fast. Uh, and I think Grant Lee is essentially the same thing. I mean, Jinja, if you don't know, I don't know, HTML or Python or JavaScript, you know, the technologies that tend to use Jinja, then yeah, there's a huge learning curve because you have to learn like these basic, these, these base level um, programming environments or languages or, or markups or whatever uh, in order to, for Jinja to be useful. Grant Lee, the same thing. I mean, if you're not programming in Qt right now, then Grant Lee is not easy to learn because now you have to learn everything. But if you're already, if you're messing around in Qt, you want a templating system, Grant Lee makes it really simple. Graphene is next, and it is a library for graphics. It, it makes rendering graphics easy on some kind of canvas. So again, I'm saying easy, and by easy, I mean easier than the alternative. So you'd have to be you'd have to be using something for which this is useful. Uh, this is a it, it calls itself or the the description here on Slackware a thin layer of types needed to write a canvas library. So. That means you are someone trying to render graphic uh, objects, graphical shapes on a, a, what they call a canvas on a computer screen, which, you know, when, when they say canvas in programming, they generally mean a place on a screen where you can draw arbitrary stuff. So it's not a predefined, the, the canvas itself is the widget, and then the thing that appears within that widget is just whatever you draw, as opposed to, for instance, a button widget. 
which usually, uh, you know, almost invariably, I would say, uh, has a, a predetermined style. Now, it might just be a rectangle with some text on it, or it might be a nice beveled rectangle, or it might be a rectangle with a, a gradient um, background or whatever. Uh, the canvas is just, it's a canvas. It's a blank canvas. Your programming framework is aware that it exists because it's defined, but what you put into that canvas area and how big the canvas is and so on is up to you. So graphene is meant for people rendering stuff into a canvas, which generally would mean probably that you have some way of defining a shape. You have data that's representing some kind of common shape. And it doesn't have to be basic stuff. I mean, yes, it does triangles, it does rectangles, it does um, quads and planes, 3D boxes, spheres, frustrations. Systems, uh, but it also does uh, quaternions and uh, vectors and matrices and Euler angles. Am I saying Euler right or wrong? Euler? Euler. E-U-L-E-R. You know Euler. Um, Euler angles, 2D points, 3D points, and so on. I think, once again, sort of the, the impact of this, the potential impact of this, really doesn't quite land like it might unless you've tried to do something like this without this. Like if you tried to render shapes on the screen without a canvas widget, that, uh, or rather without a, I mean, you, you obviously have to have some kind of canvas, although, I mean, you don't either. I mean, you, believe me. But I mean, this isn't the canvas. This is the stuff that you put into the canvas. So if you've ever had like, the desire to, I don't know, draw a shape or something on, on a, within a, within some area on a screen, then if you've done that by hand where you have to like do this loop so that you have pixels drawing from, from this point to that point, but then you have to figure out how many pixels is that? Like how, how many, how many times do I need to loop to get there? And then I need to change direction and then loop down and then loop, or, or am I filling it in? I mean, all those like conveniences of, of things that, like, if you've ever used Python Turtle, you kind of maybe have somewhat of a, of an idea of sort of the manual process of drawing a shape, although you don't really, because Turtle itself is abstracting a lot away from having to do it manually, so that's, that's even nicer than, than having to do it just literally by hand. This is, this has awareness. The, the, the advantage here is that this has a, an awareness of, for instance, the Cartesian graph or some kind of graph because actually graphene uses the, the origin point at, you know, being at like, I think zero, zero, and then it goes, it, it extends down from there, which that, that I that seems to be pretty common within computer graphics. I don't know if that's called a Cartesian graph, though. But, uh, you know, you, you, so you got your origin point, and then you can give it a width. So size.width equals 1920. And then you can give it a height as well. So size.height equals 1080. And now you've got a rectangle. But wait, you've only defined, like, three points. The origin, the, the width, the, the end point of the width... Well, I mean, you haven't even defined that, really. So you've only defined one point, the origin, and then two values, a width and a height, and graphene knows the rest of it. That's the value. And that's a simple example, right? That's a rectangle. So you can imagine how how useful that is for more complex shapes. And you know what really are complex shapes? They're fonts. And conveniently, the next item in the list is graphite. Or is it graphite 2? Graphite 2 is what it's called. But uh, the, the site calls itself just graphite. So I guess there was another graphite library maybe in Slackware. I don't remember it. But uh, graphite is a system that can be used to um, sort of script fonts. 
essentially. Like, the actual font itself can be scripted. This is really interesting stuff. It's It sounds like it would just be, like, for fun, but there's actually actual linguistic um, use cases for writing systems that require really, really complex rendering processes. You know, things that, that, uh, that where, where a character is going to be different potentially based on the character before it or after it, or characters that are rendered, you know, from left to right instead of, wait, what is it? Uh, hold on. L, left to right. Okay, L, okay, left to right is, for me, normal. Right to left is the other one, the one that wouldn't, for me, be normal. For some people, that's totally normal. Just depends on what system you're using. Um, I mean, there are systems by which, I guess, that can happen outside of Graphite, but Graphite makes it apparently really easy to do that. But, um, and, and then there are presumably yet further linguistic uses for this that I probably have no context for. Firefox and LibreOffice both support Graphite, so you might be using it even now without realizing it, but, uh, this package itself in Slackware uh, contains just the header files and the compiled library. There's a whole tool chain behind Graphite that you can try if you want. Go to scripts.sil.org slash cms slash scripts for the, the Graphite page, and there's a tutorial on there on how to compile uh, GDL, which is the, I forget what it stands for, but it's the Graphite compiler. You can download that in an application they call, I think, WorldPad, and then you can script your fonts. You can make them do various things based on various parameters, and these are sort of casually known as smart fonts, which I, I don't know if I love that that terminology, but if that's what people call them, that's what people call them. I mean, I think this is important for the obvious reason that computing shouldn't be restricted to very, very specific um, languages. I mean, the computing, the, the, the rise of computing, because it happened to come about in a place where English was the, or in places where English was the dominant language, computers kind of naturally inherited English. And I, I don't think that's, you know, a, a terrible thing. In, in fact, in, in a way, that's a great thing. It's, it's a, there's a, a semi-standard human language. If if you want to get involved with computing, you're gonna you're gonna learn a bunch of sort of, or you're gonna learn some English, even if it's just if then else else if try catch exception. You know, th words keywords like that. There they exist in the computing world. I understand that there are cultural implications there, though, and that maybe you don't want your computers to just naturally speak English. Now, you could dig out the lexer and reinvent everything with your own language or whatever, but I, I think that there's an advantage, just a, on a purely pragmatic basis. There, I would say that there is an, a, an advantage to having a common tongue. And if if that common tongue happens to be sort of established by the ubiquity of computers, so be it. And if that language happens to have been English that got sort of weaseled its way into the computer, then so, so be it. It's easy for me to say because I'm an English native English speaker, so I would... I would be okay with this, I guess. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, I'm not going to lie, I think it'd be really cool if Esperanto or, or some kind of constructed language was the default 
language, but I can see the argument against that, right? Everyone, oh, you, 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 computers would be inaccessible to people unless they learn this other language, which, I mean, of course, to be fair, is true for the rest of the world right now, so there is that. But either way, right? Like, I mean, it's a big debate, and there are, I think, really good arguments on, on lots of different angles depending on what you're looking at. Are you looking at it from a cultural point of view? Or are you looking at it from sort of an aspirational point of view? You're looking at it just on a purely functional, well, it just makes sense to standardize on something for these things. And there's just so much legacy at this point of the English language. So let's just keep going with that. Like lots of different ways to look at this. And because there may not be an easy quote-unquote right answer here, I think the least we can do as a society is to ensure that other that the experience of other languages on computers is seamless. And I, I don't know what that means for a lot of languages, honestly. I've never written Chinese. I've never had to deal with simplified versus, I don't know what, what the other one is called, like formal uh, Japanese, for instance. Uh, all of these different systems that I just have no no concept of. You know, I've got I I use an alphabet that has like twenty six characters, which frankly is a couple too many. We could we could lose a couple of letters and be fine. So that's that's all I have to deal with, and and it happens to be the native language of the of the of the computer. So or rather, it, it happens to be the language that has been adopted by the computing platform. So it's not certainly not the native language of a computer. Um, so it's easy for me to sort of sort of assume that everything just works really nicely as is. Whereas I, I realize that that's not the case. That there are lots of different ways of 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 writing, which I think is fascinating, and I think it's super important that we that we that we recognize that and make sure that it's as seamless as just writing English. Like that's that's really important. It's also a, a creative aspect. I mean, there's like a culture. Culturally, it's important, but it's also creatively. I think it's important as well because I, I think there's a lot of a lot of potential creativity that could happen with writing systems and number systems and things like that that people could try to invent. But trying to invent something that's usable on a computer isn't always all that easy. Uh, I'm not saying that graphite necessarily is easy, but I mean it's at least a tool that could potentially help someone create something interesting. So I think that's kind of a, that's a, a probably a niche case. There's some, some multimedia artist out there coming up with their own, with their own idea of a writing system that, that will also take the trouble of learning graphite, GDL, and coming up with some crazy new system of writing. I mean, you know, it's just, I, I don't know if there's anybody's thinking about that, but for me, I don't know. I think that kind of thing is intriguing, and I would hate for a computer to be a blockade to that. Graphite seems like a really interesting tool that can just be used for like real-world stuff. Like, hey, this is a really complex writing system. We need we need it to to respond to input differently than you might expect. Uh, and also, just like I want to play around with the way I I represent ideas. Like, what could I do with uh, with graphite? Who knows? So really, really cool, really complex. Nothing I'm going to ever use myself, but it's there. The graphite. It's in, it's in Slackware. What else is in Slackware? Oh yeah, okay, so this is cool. We are bringing it back around. I mean, that's a time-honored tradition of storytelling. It doesn't always happen on this podcast by any means, but this time 
in in a way it's happening what i'm talking about is desktop schemas or what, what's it what's the actual thing g settings dash desktop dash schemas that's the next one in the list this is a collection of g settings schemas for settings shared by various components of a desktop okay so this is a gnome thing i'm assuming and it's got something to do with their little gnome registry that they love to use probably and you know it, it does things like i probably i'm guessing like if the user has declared that they want um icons next to you know on the buttons rendered on the buttons or not then maybe is that even an option in gnome probably not you'd probably have to install some extension for that to work which would then break the next time you update everything um so the let's say pretend that there's an option to show or not show icons on buttons in gnome sure why not or toolbars maybe maybe that's an option probably not are there options in gnome anymore Let, let's assume there's an option in gnome it it activates or deactivates foo well when you launch your file manager called gnome files in gnome then you'd want foo to be either active or, or non-active or whatever you've set it to be in files and then when you uh, launch um the text editor you would still want foo to be active or non-active so there are obviously things that need to be shared between desktop uh, components that's what g settings schemas desktop settings whatever it's called uh it helps with now the reason i say that this sort of brings it all back around is that if we look at the package list of g settings desktop schemas dash uh, 40.0 we find in here there's a bunch of uh, xml files there's um is there a library or something no it's really just the xml files i think yeah so a bunch of XML files, and then in the user share GIR-1.0 folder, there's something called desktop enums-3.0.gir. So what's GIR? Well, remember a couple of items ago, we were talking about G object introspection. The files created for G object introspection end in .gir. Those are the XML files. They're the introspection descriptions that provide access to attributes and and uh, variables and things like that from objects. This is one of the places that's used, and you can kind of imagine why. Like if you're trying to share information about objects across different applications, then wouldn't it make sense then that those objects would have attributes in common? And that way you know you could you could query this thing, this uh, you know the calendar um, preferences to 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 find out how your your user wants the calendar widgets to be rendered and so on and and you have that that sort of thing in in the schemas directory it's user share glib-2.0 schemas org.gnome.desktop. things like background.gschema.xml calendar.gschema.xml datetime.gschema.xml i mean you can you can just see this in your head as you as you as you scroll through the names of these things i mean date time how does the user want the date time represented do they want it the 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 backwards way where it's month date year or do they want it the correct way where it's day month year from less for from most specific to broader to broader so they're bigger to bigger whatever um so yeah, these these schemas are really really um, 
sort of obvious in a way like you can you can exactly see how these would be useful in in the in the desktop environment you can see why introspection would be useful across different applications it's just yeah this this is a really nice tidy sort of wrapping up of of what we've talked about today in a way or at least two things that we've talked about today that's i think as much of this library stuff that I want to get through today, that's that's a good amount of stuff that we've talked about. Next next time we're going to talk about GSL for like six seconds, and then we'll talk about GST, GStreamer, and that should be kind of interesting. That's a fun topic. Anyway, it's time for a cup of coffee, so let's do that, and then we'll come back and talk about um, a Linux distro that isn't Slackware, and a tabletop game sandbox. But first, coffee. <laughs> for the show. I'm just kidding. I don't have writers for the show. But seriously, someone, Hacker Defo, keeps writing me. And man, such great, like, great content, essentially. Um, it, it's really good stuff. So please continue, Hacker Defo, if you're listening. You probably are, eventually. Um, and if anyone else has stuff to email me or uh, talk to me about on Mastodon or Matrix, feel free. Like, I'm there. Um, I, I'm sometimes talkative, sometimes not. Just it kind of depends, but I, I am definitely always interested in what other people are are sort of checking out in the technology space. As long as it's free software slash open source, that that that's definitely my interest uh, for this show. I mean, I'll admit to interest in other things as well, but for this show, that's that's kind of the focus. So anyway, uh, Hacker Defo emailed me. Oh, I forgot to talk about my coffee. Yes, I have coffee here. I hope you have coffee, dear listener. This is my custom uh, house blend still that I'm drinking from the from the big uh the the dry goods store just scoops of all the coffees that they had because they didn't have a full container of any of them and I am telling you it is one of the best blends I've I've had in a while honestly like this is really really good coffee and I am just enjoying it so much and I'm really going to be sad when I once I've used it all up because um it was really good but you know what that's that's the beauty of coffee, right? It's it it is ephemeral. It 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 comes and it goes, and you have your time with it, and and then it's then it's over, and you move on to a different blend. It's it's poignant if you look at it hard enough. All right, so Hacker Defo emailed me and uh, told me about this Linux distribution called Garuda Linux. That's G A R U D A Linux. It is an Arch-based distribution, which is kind of what made me. Oh, well, actually, okay, I'll be honest. A couple of things made me really look at this. First of all, Hacker Defo was telling me about it. Hacker Defo's um, told me about a lot of stuff over the past year or so, two years, um, and and it's been good stuff. So it's worth checking out, typically, I find. So that was one. The other one was that Garuda Linux, The if you go there, if you go to the site, um, if you are of a certain persuasion of sort of computerists, which sounds weird, but I mean, if you go to the site, you'll see what I mean. Like, it has a certain look and feel to it, you know? It, it, it kind of, it, it has a personality to it. And 
the at least as of the what's this month august 2023 as of 2023 august the the look and feel i i will admit is very much kind of like i find that appealing you know it's it's a little bit over the top but i like my computing over the top to be perfectly honest like i i like the leds i like the blinking lights i like the dragon iconography those are very much kind of like like those are the the you know those flames on the side of cars that you know on hot rods people put flames the equivalent of that that this is kind of that for me so that's kind of you know that's kind of cool uh and then and then they they have a lot of different editions and there's a gaming edition which which is appealing to me that's kind of interesting there's no multimedia edition but um that's okay there's a KDE an XFC a GNOME lots of different ones and and it's arch based as i said so that that's kind of interesting to me for for reasons i'll get into in a moment if i can keep track of all this stuff in my head that I'm going through. But yeah, so it's Arch, uh, and it's a Linux distribution. So I have said in the past, and I will continue to say, that I think Linux distributions, the distribution model, I think, personally, is incorrect. Like, I think that's the wrong way to go about things in technology. I think that that's a... I think it worked very much for a for a while, but but ultimately I think that's the wrong because what what it it feels to me like we are just we are repackaging the same thing over and over and over and over and over and you can play that back like six hundred times again and that doesn't feel efficient to me that feels inefficient and it also feels confusing because I mean ultimately if you tell someone oh you should try Linux and and you say just to warn you there are two or three different ones that you might want to look at to, to, to choose from well all of a sudden you have given them too many choices first of all you said you should try to you should try Linux okay that's a zero or a one right they can either say yes or they can say no that's one decision that's about enough for most people then you say look there are three or four different ones that I could see you kind of liking uh, you could try Linux mint you could try fedora because you you know you feel obligated to say Fedora, right? Um, so so maybe instead you say like I don't know Open Mandriva. Uh, you say Open Mandriva, Linux Mint, Slackware is what I use, so you should try that. And then Garuda Linux. So that's four right there, right? And they say, okay, hold on, hold on. I've said yes to the Linux thing. Now you're giving me four new choices. What's the difference? Oh, did I say four? I meant 600. I mean, that's just, that's crazy, right? Okay, so you get the point. So I don't think distribution is the correct method. I think the correct method is to have your four distributions, your Debian, your uh, Fedora, your Arch, and your um, NixOS, let's say. You have those. And then instead of a distribution, people are able to come up with little mod packs or whatever you want to call them, theme packs, whatever whatever thing you we would call this thing that I'm imagining, distro pack. And that would have all the scripts and the the, it would heck these days it could be an ansible playbook to be perfectly honest ansible playbook except with a gui front end so that people can just click on yes that's the one i want uh which is by the way pretty easy i've done an episode on how to integrate ansible into your kde desktop so why not um so you've got like this little button and it says yes i want the i want the I want this to be the Garuda distro from now on. Like, yes, it's Arch when I installed it. I get that. I understand that. But I want this to be Garuda Linux. And so they click Garuda, and wheels turn, things happen, repos are, are installed into the places where they need to be installed, and... uh 
and the wallpaper changes and the theme of the desktop changes and uh, a welcome to Garuda Linux thing pops up so that you know all the features that you've just gotten. Your menu is now populated with all these cool things and so on. So the experience of the Linux, the, the Linux experience is what the Garuda distro developers want it to be because we've got this magic distro pack. But maybe someone wants the Mint experience instead. That's fine. They install. They they they've they've chosen the Debian path, obviously. So they install Debian. They grab the Mint distro pack, and the experience is Mint-like, and so on and so forth. It goes on and on from there. You can just all of the different distributions we have. They're just Ansible playbooks with all the magic code that would transform that distribution into essentially the experience that the distro provider wants, thinks is the correct experience for Linux. And that way we're not reinventing everything. We're not spinning up ISOs for every single idea that anyone has. I mean, many, many years ago, people, I mean, it was, it was, it, it got ridiculous, right? We had things like Hannah, Manta, Hannah Montana Linux. I mean, like, I'm not kidding. That was a thing. And, or Rebecca Black Linux. I mean, just weird, weird stuff where people would literally put a different wallpaper on the desktop, press the button to respin the distro, and, a, and, and an ISO would be produced. I mean, the, the idea behind that, obviously, was that if you are a person at an institution where you do just need to change the wallpaper, like, that's, that was your, that was what you wanted to do. Then you could, you could spin that ISO up and, and then you could install it on all of your computers and you'd have a nice backup of the thing that you had sort of constructed as your ideal distro. But, uh, put that online and it becomes, a, people think it's a different thing. It becomes confusing. I think, I think it would be better to just have theme packs, distro packs, whatever. I'm just making up words now, but you get the idea. But Garuda, I mean, Garuda is gu guilty of this as as is everybody else, and and it, it, that's fine. Like, it's not <laughs> it's not Garuda that is like doing anything differently than anybody else. Like, this is this is what we have built with distro distro 600 distro world is what we as Linux users have built and encouraged and. And I build and incur I, I I encourage it every day, you know, because I I'm as guilty as everyone else. I'll go out and see a new distro like Garuda or like Open Mandriva or Magia or whatever, and think, oh, I wonder. I just kind of wonder what it's like. Like, what what's the setup process like? Do they have their own installer? What does the wallpaper look like? What do they have by default in their application menu? Do they use a dock on the bottom or do they have a dock on the side or no dock at all? You just you have all of these sort of you're just curious and it's free to try it so you do so this is the world that we've built and it's fine it's not a bad thing i'm just saying that there's probably a better version of it somewhere but this is where we are now and taking it at face value because it's reality um your root is really nice like it looks great and when you when you start it after you've installed it you you you're you or after you have downloaded the iso rather you um you boot up and it it presents itself it presents you rather with a welcome screen telling you sort of what it is and what it's got and you can click on the the things that it tells you to learn more about it so you see things like oh it's got this uh, garuda gamer well what's that well click on it and it launches um a thing that shows you all of the different launchers that's going to get installed with this gaming profile and that's really cool okay cool sounds good but after that i i wasn't able to get back to the welcome screen uh, to continue the process so that was a little bit confusing 
confusing. But if you just bail out, you just close what you've got what you've gotten yourself into, and you can click on the install button on the desktop, and then that presents a a little custom installer that they that they distribute. Which, as I understand, for um, Arch Linux, that's a big deal because Arch, I guess, is maybe somewhat complex to install. I don't really know. I'm just assuming because it seems to be noteworthy that they have a um, installer. So I, I think I have installed Arch before. I just, you know, my my perception is kind of skewed based on what I find easy. Like Slackware is very easy compared to, say, um, Open. I actually haven't tried Open lately. Net, well, Crux, C-R-U-X, Crux Linux. That that's that's difficult to install to be honest uh whereas and then maybe i don't know maybe openbsd or netbsd is somewhere in there and then and then slackware like slackware being on the easiest end of that spectrum so anything above slackware i mean it's 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 beyond easy it's it's it practically installs itself so from what I can tell, this basically installs itself. I mean, not really, but it's it's a nice little system. It's got an installer built in. It, it seems really good. And as I say, there are lots of different additions on the website, so you can try a bunch of different, or you can you can choose between a bunch of different ones. I mean, you can try them all as well, but um, I don't know that that might take a while. So that's Garuda Linux, and I'm I'm kind of mentioning it for for the reasons I've already mentioned. It just looks really cool, and it's got lots of different additions, and it was recommended by someone who I I felt was yeah it was interesting enough to check out. I you know he, Hacker Defo hasn't really steered me wrong before, so why not? So I, I took a look at it. I'm not running it or anything, you know, but it's a thing that I looked at, and it was interesting. And what it made me think of is the reality that uh, Linux distros, in addition to representing someone's perceived, you know, perception of, like, the correct Linux experience, which I think is really, really valuable. I think that's, um, that's, to a community, that is a form of feedback, right? They're saying, look, we believe, at least, if, if nobody else, then at least we developers of this distribution, we feel that we want Linux to look and feel and be experienced this way. I mean, that's that's market research in a weird way, you know, like that's which which Linux doesn't have, which and I also don't know what it is, but I've heard the term market research. And this is that right. I mean, it's like this, we're, we're hearing from people that, hey, this is how we think Linux should be, whether we agree or not, or whether you agree or not, or whatever. The, like that's, that's feedback. And and also what a distribution can represent. Not, by the way, I should say, this isn't exclusive of my idea of the correct way of doing things, these distro pack things that I'm, I'm, I made up and don't even have a proof of concept for. Um, that this is, these are not mutually exclusive by any means. They, they work hand in hand. I'm just saying the concept of a distribution, it's kind of, it's, it, it is a, it is a self-seeding community because again, it might only be five people, 10 people, 20 people, a hundred people, a thousand people, doesn't matter. Some number of people potentially are using this distribution for it to exist. Somebody's using it, presume, or someone's someone's making it, I guess. And I'm I'm being charitable and saying that if if this person made it, they're also using it. So anybody else who uses that forms the community of that distribution, and that's I think valuable. And I say that's valuable because I've kind of been there myself. I mean, I think a lot of us have been. I think we, a lot of us have have come and gone from that 
place, that place being a, a, a community around a common tool. And in a Linux distribution, that the common tool is that distribution. I'm going to talk to these people, not because I've ever met them, not because I have any interests that I share with them, but darn it, we're both using this distribution. And I don't, I don't need to go take the relationship any further than that. That's enough for us to interact and for us to help each other and be curious about each other's methodologies. Hey, what do you do for this? What do you do for that? Have you tried this one? Have you tried that one? Like, that's a community. And that's interesting to me because, I mean, those form anyway around other operating systems. Like, you will, you, you will find sub-communities of Mac users who are also doing film work, let's say. That's really cliche of me to use that example, actually. <laughs> Mac and film? Like, you have to be using a Mac to do film, blah, blah, blah. Um, I meant something else. Like, Mac users who are... Why am I saying Mac users? Windows users who are also doing uh, page layout. Uh, Mac users who are doing page layout. Users on Windows and Mac who are doing page layout with whatever kind of page layout software they're using. These communities form sort of independent of the OS layer, or they, they, they form, you know, on the same OS base layer, but around little niche interests. But with Linux, we have like this weird sort of ability to just swap out the OS base layer, which, I mean, strictly speaking, we're not, right? Linux is the kernel. There's this OS that we also call Linux. Sometimes we call it GNU plus Linux, whatever we want to call it. Like that thing, we can, we as a larger community, we, we sometimes put a different wallpaper on it, different package manager with it, and we call it a different kind of Linux, and then we swap that out. And so the communities form around that. And I'm pretty darn sure you don't get that anywhere else. Maybe you get sub-communities of, like, Windows, of people who use Windows Server and, and versus the people who use Windows Desktop. Like, that, maybe that's the, you know, the closest kind of simile to this that we could get is, well, it's the same OS, it's just a different sort of, like, way of... I, I don't know, I don't, I've never actually seen Windows Server, but I guess it must be different than the desktop version, probably, maybe, I don't know, maybe it isn't, I don't know, whatever. Um, but on Linux, you, you, you know, you, you get, like, this weird sort of, like, sub-community just wrapped around, like, this expression of a Linux, and that's unique, that's really interesting to me. Again, doesn't actually have to be a different ISO, could, could be done a different way, my way, but it's fine that it's not right now, that's fine. So, that's cool. Garuda Linux, if you're interested in Linux with a wallpaper that has a dragon on it, check it out, Garuda Linux. Now, the other thing that HackerDefo sent to me very recently was this um, Tabletop Club, is what it's called. And you can find Tabletop Club on... Don't worry, this this gets back around to open source. Don't, don't, don't worry. So you can find Tabletop Club on Tabletop club no it's not table club it's it is tabletop club but that's not where you can find it it's dr what d r w h u t not w h a t that's how what would usually be spelled this is what dr what dot itch.io slash tabletop dash club. Um I'm almost sure I will include a link in the show notes. I've just I've just pasted it into the show notes so now I can guarantee that I've included it in the show notes. Okay. So, this is an open source, uh, physics-based 3D sandbox, and th its world is a gaming table. That, that's the world that it provides you. 
And by that I mean that when you launch this game, this this tabletop simulator thing, uh, or tabletop club thing, when you launch this thing, you have a table in front of you, a, a table with green, I imagine it would be green felt, I mean it's it's virtual so it's not felt, but it's a green tabletop, and um, that's what you have. Now, you can, by default, there are four games included in Tabletop Club. There's uh, Go, no, is it Go? Go? I think it's Go, Chess, uh, Poker, and one other that I'm not thinking of right now. Um, those are the ones that are kind of bundled with this thing. And, and it, it's, it is a, it is a, it's, it's a game space. That's what it is. It's a 3D game space where you can do things. Interestingly, though, it is made with GIMP and Blender and op- uh, 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 Godot, the Godot game engine, which is open source as well. It runs on practically everything, so you can try it no matter what. It's a really interesting little... Well, it says itself. It says so itself. I mean, it's a physics-based 3D sandbox, and that that really is that's a good description of it because you might be you might be tempted to say, well, this is a you know this is a a gaming platform or 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 that it's a a, a virtual tabletop or something like that, and it's it it isn't any of those things really. It is it it is a physics-based 3D sandbox that happens to be set on a table. Now, it does lean heavily toward tabletop games, and you know this because, well, first of all, there are four games included. Um, and, and when I say there, there, there are games included, I mean, that's, that's um, you know, there are game assets that are included. So you have, like, chess pieces, for instance, and those chess pieces you can move around the, the, the a chess board, but there's, it's not like there's an AI or whatever we would call it, like a, a rule set. It doesn't know that you're playing chess. It is, you, you have the chess board in front of you, and if you make an illegal move, then that's fine. No one's going to, no one's going to, no, there's no, com, the computer's not going to stop you from doing that. It's not going to penalize you. The game, the computer is not involved in the game, in other words. There's even a button at the top of the interface called flip table, and I thought, oh, that's probably to reverse your viewpoint of the table. Like, you're sitting on the southbound, the south end of the table. Now, if I flip the table, we'll, we'll spin the table around so I'll be seated at the north as if though I'm the other player. So I click flip play, flip table, and guess what? The table just flips. Like, you know, like when people are angry and they flip the table? That's what happens. So I ruined everything that I had set up on the table because I clicked flip table and overturned the table, throwing game pieces all over the place. That was um, actually a little bit annoying, but but in retrospect, also amusing and clever. So it is. It's a table. It leans heavily towards the gaming stuff because it has games included, gaming assets included, and it also has. If you go to tabletop-club.readthedocs.io, um, you can learn about the different configuration files uh, and specifically the asset packs that you could build for this in case you wanted to include your own gaming assets. Now again, you're not including really game rules, so you're just you're just bundling together the 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 assets, the things, which could be exactly what you want. Like it, it could be fine. That could be a really cool way to distribute a game idea that you have. And in fact, that's kind of what I've been using or 
I shouldn't say I've been using it. I've been trying to use this for th for that very thing. Like, I, I've been developing little card games lately, like just with a poker deck, standard poker deck. And I have a poker deck right here, like, you know, on, on my desk. I keep one handy. Um, or it's a card deck, really. I, should say, I shouldn't say poker. I don't... I don't play poker, but um, it's a card deck, and and I like to come up with little, little games to to pass the time, and um, and and I thought this this is kind of interesting because this is a virtual. I I would have a virtual set of cards, and I could I could kind of come up with games just using these virtual cards, and that could be kind of interesting. And it is, but it also isn't. Like, so if you load up the the poker deck or the poker game. Then you have a bunch of chips, which are which are useful just to keep track of things. You know, like oh, I, I scored a point, I'll give myself a chip. Um, and and a card deck. And the card deck, um, it's it's a physics simulator, so it, everything's very manual. Is what I'm trying to get at. Like you know, you draw a card by by literally taking a card off the top of the deck and moving it where you want it to go. Which on the one hand is really really cool and liberating. You can do whatever you want. But on the other hand, you kind of realize that sometimes in a virtual space less is more and it's like i would really love to just be able to click on that card and have it appear in my hand now there is a right click button you can right click on a card in this particular game and add it to your hand and then it appears in a certain space in front of you so there there are there there's scripting that can happen within within these little you know these game sets and it is not super complex but it's also not super easy either i mean the asset pack and and all the things that you kind of have to learn it does take some some doing like you have to actually you have to you have to learn a new you know sort of format of of it's not it's not super hard it's just there there is stuff to think about and and certainly the easiest thing to do would be to add just the cards or or maps or things like that. If you start adding like player pieces, like little meeples and figurines and miniatures and stuff, well, then you'd have to add 3D objects, which maybe you can get from, you know, one of the mini 3D open source 3D model places online, uh, Creative Commons models online. You, you might be able to get little playing pieces and include them in your game pack but it is something to think about like that that is and then, and then would you want to then skin that thing or do you just want it to be a gray playing piece like it's just a lot to think about potentially but still it's a really cool sandbox right i mean it's it's this physical environment and and you have free reign over a bunch of cards with no rules which means that you can make up your own rules. And I think that's one of the disadvantages oftentimes of playing something online or, or on a computer rather, um, is that sometimes the thing that you want to do, the computer won't allow you to do it because that's not in its programmed rule set. But maybe you just have decided, you know, I, I'm just playing this game with a friend. We don't like that particular rule. We'd rather play without it. Well, you can't do that if if the if the computer is enforcing things because in in the computer's programming, the them's the rules. You can't you can't deviate from that. That can be annoying. Now, the flip side of that same 
coin is that a lot of times that's a great way to learn a new game because you can't do anything wrong. Well, you can do stuff strategically wrong, but you can't deviate from the rules. You are guided through the sequence of a turn, of a round. All your choices are laid out in front of you. You know exactly what you can and cannot do because there's only so many things that the computer's programmed to let you do in the first place. So those are those are things to consider. Obviously, in this tabletop club thing, you can you can script certain actions. You can right-click on a card and rotate it. You can right-click on a card and add it to your hand. You can do certain actions. You can move around the table with your with your mouse, zoom in, zoom out, stuff like that. So, I mean, you could create a game pack and have rules and things like that, or maybe not rules, but you could have prompts by the things that you let someone do in their right-click menu. That would be close to sort of like, well, here's a game that I have in mind for you to do, right click, and you'll you'll see the options for for that object. And there's even like there's dice, you can roll dice, and, and it's a physics simulator, so the, the, the dice will roll around and bounce a little bit and finally come to rest on some number. And if you right click on the dice, you can see that, yep, it knows what number the dice is on. So there's, it isn't, you know, it, it there's a level of intelligence here and a lot of interactivity sometimes too much interactivity sometimes not enough and and i think that's got to be a hard got to be a hard tightrope to walk right i mean cuz as i've just demonstrated there there's the, to the same idea of like do, are you, do i want the computer to enforce a rule or not there are, there are two equal arguments for and against that just kind of depending on what you want but i have long wanted an environment where i could just try things you know just game for game stuff like just let's just try it and even if you're just using like standard gaming materials like oh let's just grab some dice and some cards and make up a game or or try some things what happens when you decide that two jokers in a deck isn't enough you you want to structure a game around jokers but for your idea to work you need eight jokers you gotta have eight jokers in that deck. Well, now you can go to the dollar store and buy, like, four more packs of cards. Or I guess, well, if you have one, three more packs of cards. Or you can go to Tabletop Club and just stack your deck with, with jokers. And now you can do your joker game idea. That that kind of freedom is really, really nice. And I think it's just so cool that there is an open source engine for that now. And it's really, really cool that it's made with Godot. Because Godot has... has I've been endlessly fascinated by it, and yet not fascinated enough, apparently, for me to actually doing any, do anything in it. I still default to Lua and Love for little game ideas and quick scripts for that need a GUI. It's just kind of too easy, really. Um, but Godot, I mean, I, I, I do, I, I keep intending I should, I should do more with it, I should do something with it. And seeing this, this is just really cool. Like, this is neat. This is really, really nice. So... Check it out, really. Tabletop-club at drwhat.itch.io. It is a really, really neat little little environment. 3D physics sandbox constrained to a gaming table. It's kind of brilliant. I mean, I can really, really see the potential for this. And I'm really, really tempted to just add a bunch of 3D models into it and just do wargaming and all kinds of weird things on that gaming table because it's just so cool. Now, in real life, I'm probably not going to ever do that. I'm going to probably not continue doing all of my gaming on a physical g- tabletop because that is that's part of the appeal, right? Is that I'm not just clicking around a computer. I'm I'm doing things over over there in the in my office and not over here in my office. It's it's nice, but I still like the idea. 
I still like the concept that in a pinch, the virtual environment exists and it could be used for something. And certainly if someone's way, way far away, you could do a multiplayer, multiple player uh, um, tabletop club session. You can invite other people to your virtual tabletop. So that's really, really cool as well. Lots of potential here. Very cool idea. You should check it out if you're at all interested in that sort of thing. And even if you're not, I mean, it's 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 worth looking at just, just to see what Godot is capable of and just to see what what uh, Dr. What has come up with because it is really, really neat. That's everything for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open nuts to crack in my tongue. Nothing like this.